0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. After a young woman disappears, her distraught parents campaign for new laws that would protect other women from suffering the same fate as their daughter. This is the Anaya Blanchard story. Happy New Year, Amy. Happy New Year, Megan. What's your resolution? I don't make them anymore. (laughs) I don't either.
1: (laughs) Don't keep them. Don't make them. How about you? I don't make them because they're just there to make me feel bad about myself when I fail. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, though. On a positive note, I'll say this is the first
0: episode of season four of Women in Crime. Congratulations, Megan. So one resolution that I can easily make is that I will keep working very hard to bring our listeners the cases they want to hear about. How about you?
1: Yes, I will. Fine. That's a resolution I can keep, Megan.
0: I think so as well. So we'll make resolutions that we can live up to. Um, this case was also a listener suggestion. It involves some recently passed legislation in Alabama. So I like doing cases that, you know, have have something recent new going on. And this case is particularly meaningful to me, Amy, because it covers very heavily one of the aspects of the criminal justice system I've spent years researching. Do you know what area I've spent years researching?
1: Bail reform.
0: That's right. So I began delving into U.S. bail and plea bargaining during my Ph.D. program I wrote my dissertation on it, and I've continued writing about it pretty much to present day. So I'm going to have a brief lesson at the end to explain the very basics of bail reform and how the use of bail practices have changed in our country. But let's get into today's case to get some context first. So, Amy, I'd like to introduce you to Anaya Blanchard. Anaya was born to Mother Angela Harris and Father Elijah Blanchard, and she was raised near Birmingham, Alabama. Her parents divorced in 2004, and when Anaya was three years old, her mother Angela started dating USC fighter Walt Harris, and the pair got married shortly afterwards. Had you heard of Walt Harris? No. Nope. You don't know UFC fighters, right? No, I don't. Do you? You had heard of it? I, I feel like I kind of had, believe mm-hmm. it or not. I, I don't know UFC fighters that much, though, but I have watched a little bit. So I, I don't know. He felt It felt familiar to me. Anaya was also very close with her brother, Elijah, who was just 17 months her senior. Walt said, her stepfather, Walt, said they never felt like stepchildren to him, just children, you know, just his children. He felt that close with them at such a young, he met them at such a young age, too. He bonded with them. Walt and Angela had another son and daughter together. And Anaya helped Walt care for her younger brother and sister because her mom, Angela, worked nights as a nurse. So Walt said that he was kind of like her helper. Anaya was incredibly well-rounded growing up, playing softball, being active in her church, and just being active in general. All in all, Anaya was a beautiful, happy, and loving person, which you can really see in her photos, Amy. I watched several of the family videos. The family was kind enough to share them. And you can just tell from these videos that she was just one of the most vibrant young women. And really, you can see just the happiness that she experienced. At the time of the events we're discussing today, Anaya was 19 years old and attending Southern Union Community College in Alabama. She was living in an apartment near to her brother, who attended Auburn University. Living so close allowed them to take trips to visit family together, since their parents lived about two hours away by car. And reportedly, Anaya wanted to stay close with Elijah because she had grown up so close to him as children. On the night of October 23rd, 2019, Anaya, Elijah, and their mother Angela attended a family funeral in northern Alabama, about four hours away from the siblings' schools. Since their hometown of Birmingham was on their way, Elijah and Anaya stopped off at home to visit Walt, who was training for a fight at the time. It was just a quick hello and enough time to hug each other. And I think this really shows Amy what a, a sweet, close family they were. Because it was late and they both had to be back for their jobs, but they really both wanted to stop home and say hi to Walt. And though Walt said he wished he had just suggested they stay the night, the siblings got back in the car and arrived at Elijah's house right around 11 p.m. that evening. So Anaya was driving and she was dropping her brother off first. Now, Anaya only lived three miles from Elijah's apartment. And at 11.09 p.m., she was texting with her housemate, Sarah, and said she would be home shortly. Oh. According to her friends, one of her biggest fears was being abducted or murdered. So she was very safety conscious and regularly shared her locations. So she kept in touch with her friends and family when she did. She went out. And they did the, um, what's that called? The, the phone sharing or the phone locator? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? You can share your locations. There's a location sharing app feature on your phone. And so Anaya did that. You know, it's interesting because I was wondering why this was a fear of Anaya's. I mean, I understand why, you know, we work in this area. Yeah, we work in the field. Right. Amy, I don't know if this is just a function of honestly that we're just saturated with true crime in everyday lives. And she just might have been a true crime, you know, kind of. Yeah. I don't know what to say. Buff, but aware, because this is recent times. You know, in this case, it turned out to be true, though. Her fears would turn out to be warranted. But stranger abductions in the real world are very rare. And when women are abducted or killed, it's often by someone they know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not sure why Anaya had this fear, although I think a lot of women have this fear. I actually teach about it in my Women in Crime class. It's called The Shadow of Sexual Assault, whereby women just have a fear of being assaulted. um, And it extends to all, you know, various parts of their lives. So perhaps she was, you know, just a little bit more cautious and afraid than most. But based on this communication with her roommate, Sarah, Sarah said that she expected Anaya to be home in under 15 minutes. But a half an hour later, Anaya was still not home. And this was normally a 10-minute drive. So Sarah sent a text asking where she was, to which Anaya responded, quote, I'm smoking a blunt, LOL. Sarah said that Anaya had never used that word, before and she found it odd. Hmm. So she sent her a text back asking who she was with. And Anaya responded or her, you know, from her cell phone, quote, Eric, I just met him. But Sarah was suspicious of how Anaya had managed to meet someone on her 10 minute drive home. She said that something wasn't adding up. However, the last text that came in at 1143 p.m., Showed that Anaya's location was at a nearby apartment complex where students hung out a lot and they gathered. So Sarah guessed that Anaya was just simply hanging out with friends and met someone new named Eric. Sarah went to bed that evening, although, I mean, she was definitely uh, a little bit suspicious, but she went to bed that evening expecting to find Anaya home in the morning. But the next morning, Angela Harris FaceTimed her daughter, as they did every morning, to say hello.
1: Oh, that's cute.
0: I know. I thought that was so sweet as well. Yeah. But Anaya didn't answer. Now, her roommate Sarah also woke up to find that Anaya had not come home. And Anaya's location wasn't pinging on her phone anymore because it appeared that her phone was turned off. Sarah became very worried at this point. She was very worried, but she became even more concerned after she realized that Anaya never showed up for her nanny position with the local family. According to Anaya's employer, this was completely out of character for Anaya not to show up. Anaya also had a dog named Blue, and Sarah knew that Anaya would never leave Blue alone for the night. So, Sarah became kind of panicked, and she began driving around the area to see if she could find Anaya's car. Just remember she knew that she was at that complex, mm-hmm. and so she thought, "Okay, let me let me just go out and see if I could find her." She also alerted Anaya's brother Elijah. That Anaya did not come home after she dropped him off the evening before. Now, he was very concerned. Um, they both had worked the next day. They had made that trip home, remember, because of that. And especially after Sarah told Elijah about the strange texts that he got from Anaya, who said that, you know, she was smoking a blunt with a guy named Eric. Mm-hmm. Neither of them knew anyone named Eric, and they both thought this sounded completely out of character for Anaya. Elijah called his parents and told them what had happened or what was going on. And Angela and Walt immediately panicked. They got in their car and, you know, Walt said they raced up the two hour drive to Anaya's apartment to look for her. Walt said that that drive was excruciating, the not knowing and knowing something was completely wrong. Anaya's parents got there um, to her apartment, obviously finding she wasn't there and not knowing where she was. And so they reported her missing to the police that day. And authorities, I will say to their credit, quickly recognized that Anaya was not the type of woman who was going to fall off the radar.
1: I'm glad they took that seriously because we've seen many cases that we've covered, Megan, where they don't take it seriously and they waste valuable time.
0: Absolutely true. In this case, they did take it seriously, but unfortunately, they had few leads to go on. They didn't have much. Two days later, Anaya's badly damaged Honda was found in an apartment complex 55 miles away in Montgomery, Alabama, but Anaya was not with the vehicle or anywhere nearby. The entire community was praying for Anaya's safe return, holding vigils and conducting searches, but no one could find her. Eight days after Anaya's initial disappearance, forensics finished processing her vehicle, because remember, they had found that. Court documents revealed that a significant amount of blood was found in Anaya's car, indicating that, you know, to the police, They felt that this was more that they were looking at a homicide and not just a missing person's case based on the amount of blood. But who would want to kill a very sweet, loving college girl like Anaya? Through security footage, detectives found that shortly after Anaya dropped her brother off at his home, she stopped at a Chevron gas station at 1121 p.m. And you could see her on surveillance gathering some chips and a drink. Anaya's mother, Angela, said that Anaya snacked every night before bed. Like, always chips or always something. Who doesn't? You know, a kind of midnight snack. Well, I try not to, but it does happen. (laughs) So she basically was on camera leaving after she purchased some chips and a drink. But they also saw a man on their surveillance tapes who was at the Chevron at the same exact time as Anaya in the store. And police felt like this might be a lead. When they interviewed witnesses from the gas station, one person said he thought he saw the man in the footage force Anaya into a vehicle and the two drove off together. I always wonder, you know, I mean, he actually said it looked like the guy forced her into the vehicle. So did
1: he call anyone when he saw it? I don't understand.
0: No, he didn't. And I guess he had said that maybe his I don't remember if it was his wife or partner said something like don't get involved. Again, we don't know how forceful it was, if it was just, Mm -hmm. you know, it looked like, oh, they were having a fight maybe or if it was, you know,
1: I would always rather err on the side of caution. Get involved. I agree with you 100 percent. So um at the 2 week
0: marker of Anaya's disappearance, police released the image of this man on the surveillance stating that he was a person of interest in this case and asking anyone in the public who recognized him to call. And someone did. Someone called, revealing that the man in question was 30-year-old Ibrahim Yazid. He had been previously charged with kidnapping, robbery, and serious assault in two separate incidents. Oh wow. But Yes. Uh, Yazid, though, was out on bail, staying at a local motel in very close proximity to the Chevron gas station, where he and Anaya were both captured on surveillance.
1: Mm. Now, that doesn't sound very good. No, it doesn't, unfortunately.
0: An hour later, Anaya's Honda, an hour after the initial surveillance caught them on camera, Anaya's Honda was captured on camera as well, entering the freeway heading south towards Montgomery where her car was later found. But where was Anaya? And at this point, where was Yazid? With the help of U.S. Marshals, Ibrahim Yazid was located just the next day near the Pine Forest exit on Interstate 10 in Escambia, Florida. This exit is just past the Alabama state line, for point of reference, Amy. He was subsequently booked into the Escambia County Jail for processing. According to reports, Yazid resisted arrest and the marshals had to physically move him from his hiding spot into their vehicle. Hmm. In his arrest photo for people who are going to look, you can see that he's got a very swollen left eye, which was apparently the result of this physical resistance. Yazid was arraigned the following day, you know, read his charges. He waived extradition and was sent back to Alabama basically without protest. So extradition, he could have protested being moved back to Alabama for court proceedings, but he did not fight extradition at this point. Anaya's parents were at this first court appearance, and Walt said he had trouble controlling his anger in the face of Yazid's smug attitude. Mm -hmm. But Angela said she remained composed, wanting to show Yazid that they were going to be there every step of the way and they were going to remain strong. But Anaya herself was still missing, unfortunately, Amy. There was still no body, no sightings of her, and nothing at this point to indicate where Anaya might be. But the police actually found a second offender by the name of Antoine Fisher, whom they arrested for helping Yazid dispose of critical evidence. How'd they get this guy's name? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask that right away. And so I looked, I did a bunch of digging, and I didn't see exactly how they located him. But if I had to guess, because the two knew each other and because of the timing, the Mm -hmm. evening of the events, I'm going to say cell phone records, Mm -hmm. possibly. But I really am not positive uh, how they found him. However, I will say this. Antoine Fisher had his own murder conviction in the past and agreed very quickly to cooperate with the authorities. In fact,
1: he led authorities to Anaya, who was deceased. I'm assuming he got some sort of deal for doing so. Yeah, he did get a deal.
0: He um, actually was the charges were later dropped against him. And you'll see why. I mean, he led authorities to a deceased Anaya who you see it had wrapped in a comforter and her body was found in Macon County, Alabama, between Auburn and Montgomery in a wooded area off of any main roads. It was unclear what evidence police had on Fisher, but again, I think he was known and he was acquaintance and he had his own criminal record. After Fisher led them to Anaya's body, the police took photos of the items at the scene and detectives showed the photos to the family so they could try to identify Anaya as quickly as possible or exclude her from, you know, being the person they had found. The body in the woods was Anaya Blanchard Sadly, they recognized, her family recognized her clothing. Walt, God, he stormed out of the room after the confirmation of finding Anaya punching a concrete wall outside of the room. As police collected more evidence, they were able to extrapolate what Anaya had gone through that terrible night. So it seems that Anaya had been abducted, as that man witnessed, and she had been shot as she tried to escape. They were able to determine that through bullet holes. And her cause of death. So on December 2nd, 2019, Yazid was charged with Anaya's murder, and the prosecutor announced that he was, in fact, going to seek the death penalty. But Yazid, Amy, did not remain silent. He could be heard saying in court that there was no video or audio of him, and there was no evidence he did this. He laughed. He smirked afterwards. He looked very pleased with himself. These things are always hard to watch. But there was plenty of other evidence, as well as Antoine Fisher admitting to authorities that Yazid was driving Anaya's vehicle the evening that she went missing. Um, Fisher said that at some point he got in the vehicle with Yazid and that he saw Yazid take Anaya's body out of the vehicle and place it in the woods. So that's the testimony they have from him. Mm-hmm. Fisher also told the police that Yazid said to him that he shot Anaya when she made a move for his gun. I think this was a robbery gone wrong. At this time, Yazid was being held without bail and would face trial for Anaya's murder. What about Antoine Fisher? Well, the charges against Antoine Fisher were dismissed in 2021 by a judge, as it seemed that he really did not have involvement in the crime against Anaya. And I think also because of his cooperation, I think because he's the reason they found her. Um, and I think he might have just been in the car after the fact and they didn't press on.
1: So he was fully free. Or was he being held on other charges?
0: Nope, he was released. He was not charged with anything related to Anaya's murder. But what makes this case so controversial and the part I really want to focus on pertains to the fact that Yazid had a very long criminal history and he was out on bail while he was facing some serious, some very serious violent felony charges. So Amy, I want to give you Yazid's history, his criminal history right now, okay? To understand the full gravity of the situation, I think this is necessary. okay. It seems he also, by the way, had a long history of violence that he was always able to skirt. In 2011, Yazid was charged with two counts of robbery, but a grand jury dismissed the charges. In 2012, so just a year later, Yazid allegedly tried to hit two police officers with his car as they attempted to exit their vehicle at a gas station. Those charges were also dismissed. In 2013, Yazid was caught with an illegal firearm and illegal marijuana, as well as having crack cocaine in his vehicle after fleeing the scene of a traffic stop. So, again, these are multiple charges and he's fleeing the scene. Those charges were combined in a 2015 indictment to which Yazid pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to 13 months in prison, Amy. But get this. His sentence was suspended. And he received a six-month term of probation. Oh, wow. And I'm wondering why for all these serious charges. Then in 2017, Yazid was arrested in Kansas for drug possession, aggravated assault, and aggravated battery of a law enforcement officer. So hes we are talking about very violent felonies, and he's committing them against law enforcement as well. In this case, Yazid was only found guilty of possession of marijuana and fleeing from law enforcement, not assaulting them, for which he served eight months while awaiting trial. In 2018, he was charged with kidnapping, robbery, attempted murder, and possession of marijuana in Montgomery, Alabama. Bail was set in the amount of $295,000, which he was able to pay, and that's how he was out of jail at the time of Anaya's murder. Wow.
1: See, that's someone that probably should have been denied bail. Well, that's the conversation that we're going to have.
0: Also, when um, bail is set in the amount of $295,000, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to post Mm -hmm. $295,000. Bail bondsman or a family member can post 10% for you um, or a house can be used as collateral for a family member. Because I was looking up, you know, how was he able to make this money? He seems like a career criminal or how is he able to make this bail? And I'm still not sure. But I think it's important to know that you never have to pay the full amount Hmm. or almost never have to pay the full amount. He also faces charges, just so you know, in another potential homicide. So, Amy, if even half of this is true, because you have to take account for the fact that charges were dismissed. Grand jury failed to indict him on some of this. I would still say he's probably a career criminal offender.
1: Yes, I, I totally
0: agree. But how did he keep getting away with it? Like, we, I don't know what the evidence was in all these previous cases, so it'd be hard to say. But either this guy has a lot of luck or some leverage or mm. he just knows how to work the system. I'm not really sure, but it seemed like, seemed like he got away with a lot of things, possibly.
1: Does he have any connections to law enforcement? I wondered that, but I couldn't find any. But
0: let's go back to Anaya. Her family was outraged to learn that such a dangerous man had been allowed To not only to get bail, but to be able to pay it and then just walk free and live in the community when he was facing some of the most severe charges. So they decided to lobby for bail reform in Alabama because prior to that, here's what the Alabama rules were. Anyone basically not charged with a capital offense, which always involves some form of murder, those people were eligible for bail. And so Anaya's family lobby to change this because they did not want to see people accused of all of these types of violent felonies just automatically getting bail. Before I get to the reform Anaya's family pursued, this is where I want to give you a brief bit about the history of bail. Now, Amy, you might know some of this, but probably not all of it. But bail was originally intended basically to secure the return of a defendant to court to face charges. This was the only original intent, okay? Bail would be set a defendant would then be obligated to come back and face their charges the constitution provides that excessive
1: bail shall not be required but that standard is not objective right? i was going to say what is what does excessive mean i mean excessive is so subjective excessive to you and me too i mean we've talked about the
0: there are many cases we know where $500 Might as well be $5 million to someone who can't pay it. Mm -hmm. So excessive bail is one of those vague terms and vague terms, you know, kind of give breed to litigation and what means excessive and, you know, different cases going to court saying, well, this is excessive to someone who has no means. Regardless of excessive, in the 1960s, there was a bail reform movement that centered around reducing the reliance on cash bail because... Research showed that it was being used to detain people who simply could not afford to get out. So there was a a Federal Bail Reform Act of 1966, and that required judges to grant ROR whenever possible. ROR is the Recognizance on Release, and that basically means you're giving your word to the court. That's it. It's a pledge. I give you my word. I'm going to come back. Mm -hmm. It was very fitting at this time, Amy. I don't know if you realize it, because the 1960s marked the Due Process Revolution in the U.S. Supreme
1: Court. Um, do you teach about this in your class at all in crime justice or no? A little bit. I don't I don't go that far into it. But, yeah, we definitely scratch the surface on it.
0: Yeah. I mean, when I would say due process revolution, you know, we had cases like Miranda, Miranda rights that was decided by the case at that time. The exclusionary rules. So I guess map v. Ohio mm-hmm. um, established the exclusionary rule. The exclusionary rule means that any evidence obtained in violation of someone's constitutional rights cannot be admitted in a court of law. So in the 1960s, you have some very big due process cases coming out of the court. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, it feels very fitting that the Bail Reform Act of 1966 was here. And again, the this act focused just on flight risk. That's it. Mm -hmm. The original purpose of bail flight risk. And this march towards due process rights was really picked up a lot of speed until the 1980s. And the 1980s kind of changed everything, right? Now we saw the tough on crime error came rushing in. Nixon declared a war on drugs, but Reagan really kind of you know stepped up that war on drugs. The purpose of punishment was changing and the way we used it, rehabilitation was falling out of favor. And around the same time, you had a second bail reform act and this one was much more significant. This was the bail reform act of 1984 and it was passed in the federal system. And this act was very different because it allowed judges to detain those defendants who posed, quote, a potential danger to the community.
1: Again, very subjective.
0: Well, there's some criteria which we'll talk about. However, this is the first time questions of dangerousness had ever been discussed when when we're talking about bail decisions. It was only flight risk. Now we're looking at potential danger. And the Supreme Court heard a case, too, here. So the Supreme Court kind of gave blessing to this Bail Reform Act. Have you ever heard of the case of United States v. Salerno? I haven't, no. Okay. So that was um, a case in which the prosecution was seeking to detain defendant Anthony Salerno on racketeering and other organized crime charges. Their claim was that he posed a significant danger to the community and certain members of it if he was released. The court granted this request. And announced in a decision that it was permissible for judges to consider potential dangerousness in bail decisions. And so the entire system changed, which means now every state and the federal system looks at two criteria. Well, not just two criteria, but they look at flight risk and potential dangerousness. Fast forward to the mid 2000s, OK, when bail reform sparked another renewed interest and when researchers like myself began writing on this topic again, really with the growing incarceration of pretrial detainees you know, in our era of mass incarceration, we started to see these numbers just, you know, escalate at, you know, unprecedented proportions. Right. So there's been a strong backlash against the overuse of cash bail to detain poor defendants in this country. And there is a very strong body of research, Amy, to support the fact that many people who commit very low-level crimes spend more time in jail than they might have even been sentenced to because they could not afford to pay to get out. Yep. That's so. That's kind of where we're at. And anecdotally, I mean, this reminds me of, I think, of the Khalif
1: Brower story.
0: Do you remember the Khalif Brower case?
1: Yeah, it's one of the most tragic stories. Yep. So tragic. Did you did you see the documentary on that? No, I haven't. For those of you who haven't, I
0: encourage you to watch it. Um, Khalif Brower spent three years incarcerated at Rikers Island notoriously the worst or one of the worst jails in this country for a low-level theft that he did not commit. And if you, you watch that and the consequences and what happened to him after, you can really understand what it is like to be poor in our system. And, and those are, could go into a whole thing. I'm not going to get too far into it, but those who are detained prior to trial, you know, it kind of impacts the entire course of your case. So you lose your job, income, housing. You're unable to participate in your own defense as much as those people who were out before trial. And then also you're more likely to be convicted later on and you receive a harsher sentence. So all the consequences down the line, you can just kind of look at them down the line. Not only that, Amy, but this is why we also have such a high rate of plea bargaining, because this pressure people plead to get out. When I did my dissertation, that was a common theme that I heard. I pled guilty just to get out of jail. That's not the way our system is supposed to work.
1: I was just covering this in my race and crime class and talking to my students about the difference between a choice and a dilemma, because usually, let's say you have a single mother who, if she doesn't take a deal, then her children are going to be taken away from her. She's going to lose her job. But if she takes the deal, then, you know, she possibly might be admitting to something she didn't do if it, you know, if it was a situation in which she was just being targeted. then you have someone who's in a dilemma. A dilemma is a choice between two equally undesirable outcomes. Not a choice. It's a dilemma. I'm so glad you clarified
0: that. Um, Thank you, Amy, for that. Many states have now changed their laws again to allow for less restrictive financial bail conditions, which makes sense. But it seems Alabama presumed release in any crime that wasn't capital. And so that is how Yazid, Ibrahim Yazid was, that is how Ibrahim Yazid was released into the community. So now I want to talk about specifically Anaya's law and bail in Alabama. In response to their daughter's murder by a previously convicted violent man, Anaya's family pushed for Anaya's law to be passed in the state of Alabama. This bill made its way through the regular channels in Congress. But just recently, Amy, with the November 2022 vote, Anaya's law was officially voted into law. So what does the law say? This law changes the requirements of bail to add crimes for which bail can be denied. Okay, so it expanded. It went from saying murder is not the only considered crime. Mm -hmm. Um, It has a whole list of other crimes, kidnapping in the first degree, rape in the first degree, sodomy in the first degree, sexual torture, domestic violence. And there are other violent crimes that are added. So basically it expanded the possibility to deny bail for people charged with other serious violent felonies.
1: I think that's great, but I wonder if it swings too far in the other direction. That's the question we're going to have to have
0: here. So when a court considers whether there are conditions that would ensure defendant's appearance in court and ensure, remember, the safety of the community, they are considering some of the following. Uh, the nature, of course, and the seriousness of the, the crime for which the person is charged. So we're talking about some of these crimes. One of the criteria as well is the evidence against the defendant. So how strong is the evidence? You know, can the prosecutor make a good showing that they have, you know, more than perhaps just light circumstantial? But, you know, strength of evidence here. Isn't that a requirement for them uh, charging someone to begin with, though? It's always a requirement for them charging too, but strength of the evidence means the judge can say, hey, you know, I think you have the bare minimum or Mm -hmm. I think you have a really good, like if this case goes to trial, there's a really strong possibility. So it's allowing judicial discretion here. It's strong evidence of guilt, not of dangerousness. Potential dangerousness is also a consideration, but yes, evidence of strength of guilt. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they can consider um, family ties, employment, length of residence in the community. Criminal history is going to be very important as well. And I think you could see why when it comes to Yazid. A record uh, uh, concerning appearances at court proceedings before. So has this person returned to court before? Were they actually a flight risk? And also at the time uh, the offense was committed was a person on probation, parole, or some type of release, you know, pending other charges or that stem from other charges. And again, importantly, danger to the community of if the person was released. Okay, so logically, this makes sense. Right. But, you know, does it go too far? And so original bail reform people would say that bail was only supposed to be about flight risk. Now we're talking about safety of the community. Okay, You know what? The U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on that and said, like, this is a potential consideration. I guess the question here and what I saw on the flip side was some people are just saying that, again, this is we presume people we are supposed to presume people are innocent. And so, if we detain these people, are we then presuming that they are guilty? Does this
1: take due process? Does this violate due process? What are your thoughts? Yes, but the need to protect the community is greater. So, I could understand dangerousness more so than flight risk. You know, I have to say, I agree because I've, I've, my, my,
0: what I feel strongly about in terms of bail reform, what I've long advocated for, was that people should not be held in jail for misdemeanor crimes because they cannot pay to get out. So, I fundamentally oppose. You know, a cash bail system. But the question here is should a judge be able to use their discretion to detain a person who poses a potential threat to the community? And I do think this is inherently more complicated. And I do think it has the possibility for judges to abuse discretion, which we know can happen. However, I'm going to side with you on this one as well and say that there is a real consideration for the greater good and the safety of the greater good. And I will tell you this Anaya's family points out that had Yazid been held, Anaya would likely be alive today. And I think that's probably true. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you think that is probably true as well, Amy, right? I totally agree, Megan. Just so you know, there are bail reform efforts in every state. New Jersey's just reformed bail as well. I do think protection of the community has to be a priority as well. I'm curious to see where the new bail reform movement goes. In New Jersey, it's been very complicated with the new system. And I Struggle to understand it, but I'm curious to see what direction all the states are going to go in and if this will be a very strong bail reform movement. You know, at the very least, I hope it's away from we hope it's away from cash bail for low level offenders.
1: It's like many criminal justice reforms. You're trying to weigh liberty and safety of the community. So liberty of the individual and safety of the community. And that's tricky. It is very tricky.
0: In this case, you know, I look at an offender like Yazid as well, and I just wonder how he was able to keep skirting the law. But it's always easy to say that it was just bail. Mm -hmm. I never look at it that way, though. I always look at it was systematic. It was that a judge failed to sentence him. Somebody, you know, somebody suspended his sentence. Somebody failed to indict him. He was released early. It's not usually one decision point. Like at that one, it seems like this guy there was a series of decision points that could have changed the outcome here.
1: It's the same as when somebody's wrongfully convicted. Very seldom can you point to one person. It's just a series of decisions that led to a miscarriage of justice. Absolutely. Well, in the end, Anaya's legacy lives on
0: um, not only through this legislation, but in other ways too. Anaya's mother, Angela, founded Anaya's Heart, and its mission is to prevent violence through safety training, education, and empowerment. They also help with search efforts of the missing. Um, her stepfather, Walt, unsure if he could fight again, returned to the ring in honor of his daughter, Anaya. Anaya Blanchard is clearly a woman who had an impact on all people who knew her and did not. And this is not a woman who will be forgotten.
1: Thanks, Megan. This case definitely gave us a lot to talk about and a lot to think about in terms of criminal justice policy and reform. I think it was one of those cases where we were
0: able to really dig into some of the issues that uh, we are passionate about as well. So thank you to our listeners and we will catch everyone next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content, such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include WPTV.com, an episode of 48 Hours, the Montgomery Advertiser, Oxygen.com, and
1: NBC12.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties.